Good morning, friends. I just want to pray. Um, God, today we're opening the book of Exodus, this, this epic book of this crazy story that happened over 3,000 years ago. And the reason I want to pray is because we're going to be reading about stuff happening in this land thousands of years ago. And some of that is blood being spilled on the ground of this land in the Middle East. And here we are thousands of years later. And innocent blood is still being shed in this land. So we just cry out for your sons and daughters, who is all people in Israel and Palestine and the Gaza Strip and all over this land. We ask for a release of innocent prisoners and hostages in Jesus' name. We ask for rockets to stop and guns to be gunfire to be ceased. And we ask for peace because you, Jesus, are the Prince of Peace because you said, blessed are the peacemakers. And so we cry out for the, for the Israelite people in the Middle East suffering and we cry out for the Palestinian people suffering in the Middle East. We cry out for the Lebanese people suffering in the Middle East. We cry out for lasting and meaningful peace and solutions and ways forward, but now we just ask for mercy. Would you bless the, the fathers and mothers hoping that their, the next shell doesn't land in their home and their children? Whether it's in Israel or the West Bank or Ukraine, we ask for mercy for those who aren't waking up in peace and quiet and comfort like we are. So we thank you, God, that we can be here at 1036 North Van Buren in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we can pray to the God who is present with all people across the world, knowing their needs and their, their desires and their cries. Thank you, God. And would you now just teach us through your word, through ancient stories, teach us what you're like even today. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you guys, but whenever I think of the biblical character of Moses and read in the book of Exodus, when I picture Moses, I just picture Christian Bale. <laughs> no? Or Moses' adopted Egyptian mother, she definitely looks like Sigourney Weaver, I'll bet. <laughs> I wanted to show that trailer because the story that we're diving into this morning this book, the story that we find in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. It's a story that has resonated deeply within humanity for thousands of years. It's a story that we and millions of people believed happened over 3,000 years ago on the other side of the world, but this story is the formational story for one of the biggest religions in the world, and that's Judaism. 
My wife, I used to work with a, a Jewish woman, and she knew that I was a pastor. I had just started Bruce City. I was bivocational at this point, working full-time in the business world and trying to start it and grow a church. And this Jewish woman invited me and my wife to a, a Passover meal that they hosted with their family, and it was so fascinating. These traditions that this group of people who lived up in Shorewood in, in 2000, whatever it was, 13 or something like that, this, this story that, that happened thousands of years ago, this family is still celebrating and witness, bearing witness to and arguing about, and we got to be onlookers for that. Not only are, is this story a formational and pivotal story for a whole people group, it's also a story that has resonated deeply in Hollywood. I mean, let's just look at a few of these images. Anybody see that growing up? If you're young enough, see, no one's seen God's, God's and Men, Exodus, whatever. We've seen Prince of Egypt. I don't remember it. Uh, what's next? This is the one. Every single Easter, the older of us will raise our hands. You remember, I, I never understood why they showed the Ten Commandments on Easter Sunday every year. I still don't. It's been every single Easter Sunday since 1968, I believe. And I want to be like, Hollywood, you do realize that the resurrection is not the same story as Exodus. Maybe it's just the best they had or something like that. But Charlton Heston, let's go back. I want to just enjoy Charlton Heston for a minute. My, my favorite thing about those movies is the, like, the set behind them that's supposed to be the ancient Near East. You know what I'm talking about? Like boulders that actually look like they have felt a felt blanket thrown over them. It's from 1958 after all. But since, I think, 1958, 1956 or 1958, Cecil B. DeMille's, I think that's what his, his name is, who created it, and Charles Heston, Hollywood has been obsessed with this story that we find in the second book of the Bible. And not only Hollywood, but many of us grew up in Sunday school, and if you grew up in Sunday school, this was one of the go-to stories. And for good reason, it's a story about this little tiny group of people who weren't even a nation, who throw off the bonds of oppression and slavery and stand in the face of the most powerful empire in the world at this point and walk out and are delivered by this God, not because they're such an amazing people, but because their God is so powerful and amazing. It's the first book or the first story in the Bible that has a real and true villain to it. And man, Pharaoh is a good villain. He's someone that it's easy to hate. And not only does it have a good villain, if we're talking about good Hollywood stories, good Sunday school stories, it has the best kind of hero. The hero of the book of Exodus is this guy who who is the most unlikely of people, who's a lowly shepherd. He's a humble guy. As a matter of fact, in the story, it says he's the most humble guy who ever walked the face of the earth. And for those of us who thought Moses wrote the book, the, 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 the book of Exodus, he might not have. We'll, we'll dive into that in a minute. It's a, I always thought it was an awkward thing for someone to write that Moses was the most humble man who walked the face of the earth. But he was this humble, lowly shepherd who wasn't articulate or, or eloquent and he stands in the face of the most powerful man in the world and doesn't back down and leads this underdog people 
out of the empire to become their own nation. Now that is a story that resonates with Hollywood and with Sunday school and deep within the human experience even. This is an epic story that we're going to be diving into. And before we actually dive into the narrative, we're actually not going to open Exodus 1 this morning. See, because that's what too many of us do, is we want to dive into or read the scriptures without actually knowing a little bit about the world in which maybe this happened in, and what, what do scholars believe about it, and opening up biblical scholars and saying, who wrote this, this book, and, and what was it for, what's the point, and what, what do scholars think of it? So this morning, we're just going to situate ourselves in the book of Exodus. We, we're in the, book, the gospel of John for over a year, and this morning, we're starting our study in the book of Exodus, and again, we're going to take this little kind of higher view, a 30,000-foot view in the book of Exodus before we dive in to the nitty-gritty. And what I want to tell you before this, the book of Exodus is 40 chapters, and now probably some of you are scared, because that probably means we're going to spend about three years in the book of Exodus if I go according (laughs) to the way I preach. Don't worry about it. We're going to, sometimes we're going to go a half chapter at a time. Sometimes we're going to go five chapters at a time. There's the book of Exodus is a book of several different stories that turn into one story. There's really the first story is God getting a name. In the book of Exodus, for the first time in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, God appears by name. And that means something. And then the next little big section is this epic battle between Moses, which is really not a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. It's a battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh. And who is the true king of the world? And then we get this story of wandering in the wilderness, in the desert. The story where God is trying to turn this ragtag group of of people in a family who who are slaves, and he wants to turn them into a nation. And he has an agenda for them even, for this nation. Then we're going to look at the the Sinai narratives where where everything happens for the Jewish people, which is our religious heritage. If you want to know what it means to be a Jewish person, you have to go first to the Mount Sinai and what happened there. We're going to look at that as well. And then you get this tabernacle narrative. And it's clunky. And if if you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, who's tried to do that? Anyone tried to read through the Bible in a year? You get to some of these passages in the Old Testament, and it's just like trying to walk through mud. It's just all these dimensions and materials. It's like maybe if you're a construction manager, you appreciate it, but if you're a normal person, it's dry as dirt. But there's something more going on in these construction plans that we're going to look at. The book of Exodus has all these little mini-series that turn into this epic story. And even the book of Exodus, we'll find this morning, does not live on its own. It's not its own unit. It's part of something bigger, a bigger story. So as we think about the book of Exodus, we think and bring, and this is why I wanted to begin this series with this trailer, we have a, we have a, 
a very concrete idea of what is the book of Exodus and what's the story and what's, what, what the story's all about because of Hollywood and because of Sunday school. But here's, as we do this little, let's do a little biblical 101, a little Bible 101. When we think of the book of Exodus, and we have our imaginations informed by Hollywood and by Sunday school, but then if you actually do some work and consult the biblical scholars, which we should if we're opening a book of the Bible, we run into our first real problem, and it's a real problem. You won't hear this in Sunday school and seeing Sunday school and in the movies. This, this makes for good drama because of, because of all the craziness of a people, a, a sea being split in two and a people walking through it. A lot of people died because of that. We don't like to talk about that. But then, then, then this people, as they're journeying through the wilderness, they have the, the, this dude hits a rock and water comes out of it. And all of a sudden, this starving people are fed by bread that's falling out of the sky. That's not even to mention the plagues. And when people say, say how's the weather? And they say, man, it's kind of biblical out there. They're talking about the book of Exodus. Hail and locusts and frogs. And in our last book of the Bible we looked at, Jesus turned water into wine. And now in this story, God turns water into blood. Craziness going on. All of our imagination about this book is informed by this. But if you turn to the biblical scholars, in the last 80 years, biblical scholars and archaeologists have done, have also, not just like Hollywood, have also become fascinated with the book of Exodus and the story in it. And there's been unprecedented amounts of, of historical digs that have happened. Archaeologists and biblical scholars trying to find out and learn about this, this story. This is what's common, is you, you just learn about the, the historicity of it and the, and the details, and you get a bigger knowledge of what's, what happened in the story when you, when you turn to the archaeology and the biblical scholarship. And what you find, if you open some biblical scholarly books, is that many biblical scholars actually don't think the story really even happened. You won't hear this in Sunday school. And you won't hear this in many pulpits, as a matter of fact, because it introduces problems. But I'm not interested in fooling you guys. I'm not interested in lying to you. I'm not interested in having me say something. And then you go out there and you open a book of biblical scholarship, or you open, or you listen to an a person who, an atheist with an agenda, right, in saying that scholars and archaeology tell us the story never happened, and so that means the Bible can't be trusted. So the first bit of trouble we walk into is as we open the book of Exodus and consult the scholars is that there is no, after about 80 years worth of archaeological studies and digs and research, there's actually zero evidence that a mass exodus of two million people or so from Egypt into Canaan actually happened. So what do we do with that? Do we just do what many would do with that information and say, well, if, if, if what happened in the book of Exodus didn't happen the way it says in the Bible that God said it did, that means either you're a heretic, Randy, for saying this, or none of it's true and we all have to walk away because the whole Bible is worth throwing out now. I'm not so sure about that. In order to answer questions like this, we first have to think about what, in fact, this book is, the Bible. 
what is the Bible? Now, there's all sorts of answers. I, I, I ask you guys questions and, and hear from you, but right now I don't want to do that. The, the Bible, in the sense that I'm talking about it, we could talk, talk about it, the Bible is the Word of God, the Bible is the Holy Scriptures, the Bible has been inspired by God, the Bible is the infallible Word of God. Some people think that the Bible is inerrant, some people don't think the Bible is inerrant, all sorts of controversial things, but that's not what I'm talking about. See, what the Bible actually is, is a, is a library of about 66 books. And of those 66 books, there's dozens and dozens of authors. Many of those authors, and maybe even you could say the mo most of those authors, we actually don't know who wrote those books. Or maybe we, who we thought wrote them didn't. But of those 66 books, there's about seven different kinds of literature within this library of books. We don't often think of the Bible as a library, but it is. And I just said there's about seven forms of literature to the Bible. Let's, let me hear you. Let's see if, what kind of Sunday school students you were. What are the seven forms of literature, the main seven forms of literature in the Bible? History, thank you. Poetry. Wisdom. Prophecy. That's, yes. Apocryphal, five. Letters or epistles, and we were just in them, Gospels, history, poetry, wisdom, literature, uh, Gospels, epistles or letters, apocryphal writing, there's all these genres. Now, the problem with one of these genres is what we're in for the next who knows how long, and that is history. See, when we say that the Bible has this genre of literature that is history, we think a certain way about that kind of genre. When we say that the Bible has books, historical books in it, we think a certain way about that, what that means, and that for most of us, Almost all of us probably, when we think the Bible is that the book of Exodus is a book of history, we think of the, the book of Exodus as a book of history like the history books we encountered in high school and in college. That this is just as impartial of, of, of a take on history, which by the way, P.S., there is no impartial take on history. You won't find it. But this is, this is like a history book that we come to, and this is basically a book that's, that's speaking to something that happened and giving us all the details so we can get the landscape of, of what happened. If you don't understand history, you're doomed to repeat it, right? So we think of this as a book of history that we've come to that's objective and just stating the facts and telling us exactly what happened. But see, that's not how these historical books work in the Bible. It's a huge, actually, mishandling of the scriptures. I'm going to read this because this guy said it way better than I could. This is the, the author of a very mainstream, Protestant mainstream commentary. He's an Old Testament scholar. He wrote the NIV application commentary, which is probably the most kind of mainstream evangelical series, even though we're not an evangelical church. We still have some of those sensibilities. And this biblical Old Testament scholar said this. The Old Testament is not a journalistic dish, dish, dish. 
The Old Testament is not a journalistic, dispassionate, objective account of events. The Old Testament is not a newspaper. Now, I know there's probably two people in the room who still need read newspapers. That's Bob Turner and myself. <laughs> but this Old Testament scholar is saying, and he's a Christian, the Old Testament is not a journalistic, dispassionate, objective account of events. I hope you're listening. Its purpose, the Old Testament's purpose, is not just to tell us what happened so that we can look objectively at the data and arrive at the proper conclusions. This is how we've taken the book of Exodus and the historical books of the Bible, is, is it not? See, he says this. The Old Testament is theological history. It has been written to teach lessons. The primary lesson, I would argue, this scholar says, is to teach us what God is like and what it means for his people to live with that knowledge. If I can put it another way, this scholar says, the Bible is an argument. And here's my little insert. That's a very Jewish way of seeing the Bible. If I can put it another way, this scholar says, the Bible is an argument to God's people that God is worthy of our worship. Now, that's a mouthful. But if I can translate what this scholar said is that the Bible is not a newspaper. The Bible is not a news website. The Bible, the Old Testament in particular, the book of Exodus in very particular, is not a history book that you'll encounter in high school or in college. The, the, the book of Exodus is not a user's manual. The book of Exodus is historical in that it is theological history. And that means that the point of the book of Exodus is not to tell us about these events that happened and we get to make this nice, neat, concise timeline and know exactly how it happened, where it happened, to whom it happened to, exactly in the way it happened. Theological history means that the biggest purpose of this book is to tell us about what God is like through these stories. The main point isn't when exactly it happened, how exactly it happened, to whom, who were the characters, who was real, who was not, what, what Pharaoh was it. There's all sorts of debate about these things. That's not the main point. And if you're making the main point, you're missing the point of the Bible. See, the Bible in the book of Exodus is a story of God and his people. The Bible in the, in, the, in the book of Exodus is about God trying to teach his people throughout time what God is like. And then, once we learn what God is like, and this is what our kids do in, in, with the, the, the curriculum that our children's ministry director writes in Sunday school, what does it say about God, and then, therefore, what does that say about us? That's what the Bible is about. That's what the book of Exodus is about. It's how to live in light of this God that we find in the book of Exodus. It's theological history. And the stress is on that word, theological. So how do we respond to the scholars then that say, there's no evidence that this actually happened, so therefore it didn't happen. There's, 
Again, one way to, to, to say is to say, well, if, if none of this happened in the book of Exodus, because this is God's word, and it, God said that this happened, and if it didn't happen, that means we can't trust it. That means we can't trust, if we can't trust Exodus, we can't trust Genesis, we can't trust the prophets, and we certainly can't trust Jesus. We get to truck the whole thing. It's part of the reason why I'm talking about this is because too many people in the church have discovered these little dirty secrets that no one wants to talk about and then we walk away from the Bible and we walk away from the church and we walk away from Jesus. And it's completely unnecessary. So we could have that that says that we could take it that says if it didn't really happen exactly the way it says it happened, we chuck the whole thing. Or we could just do what the opposite side says, which is, well, I don't care what biblical scholars say because they're from academia, and academia means a bunch of leftist liberals who are godless people who think they can figure out everything with their heads. You can't. It's God's word. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. So scholars, forget about them. We know that God's word is true, and I don't care what data you come up with. I don't care what facts you tell me. I believe this is true because God said it's true. I grew up in that world. You don't have to go to that extreme either. You don't have to ignore scholarship because when I say biblical scholars, I'm not talking about people who have an agenda to disprove the Bible. I'm talking about people who have given their lives to studying the Bible. What many scholars think is that probably, and this is where I land, and you can land wherever you want. You don't have to land here just because I do. But what many scholars think, Jewish and Christian scholars, is that probably a mass exodus of two million people or so, which is what the book tells us happened, probably didn't happen, but also something happened. Like there, there is seems to be evidence that Israel or Hebrew people did live in Egypt at some point, and that there is evidence that that group of Hebrew people left at some point and, and arrived at Canaan at some point in some way, shape, or form. It's probably something happened, and it seems likely that something happened, maybe just not on the scale. And what biblical scholars refer to this as is this something that was really common in the ancient Near East when the book of Exodus was written, probably, is this idea of mythologized history mythologized history, and that is that this story first started be, to be told and passed on orally. And then when the writers of the Bible were, were writing it down, they took and compiled these stories, and the editors put it together. And probably something like this happened, but they made it sound a little bit greater and more epic to make the stories have even more weight and gravity to them. Does that make sense? And again, I want to say this is not to say that this is, this is a horrible way of of understanding the Bible. This is just the way people wrote thousands of years ago. That if you want to tell a story and make a point, especially about something like a God, you tell a story that probably happened, that was passed down, but you actually make it sound, you make it more epic and bigger in scope than it really was to make those realities about who that God is even land harder and heavier and weightier. This is just the way ancient writing happened in the ancient Near East. And so just like several years ago, I went through the book of Genesis. It was a fun series. But we came to the flood narrative. 
And within the flood narrative, there's many scholars who believe different things. There's scholars who believe nothing happened, that the flood actually is just a story, one of many flood stories within the ancient religions in the ancient Near East, and that it probably didn't happen. And then there's some scholars who think that a global epic flood, just like it says in the book of Genesis, actually happened. And then there's many scholars who think that a regional flood probably is more likely that it happened, and the Bible tells it in, in, in the global way. And you can believe all three of those things and follow Jesus, just so you know. Too few of us say that part when we're talking about the scriptures. And it's just like that. You can believe that all of it happened in the book of Exodus. You can believe that none of it happened in the book, like it says in the book of Exodus. And you can believe that a lot of it happened, but the point is something bigger, and all of us can follow Jesus together. And if you don't think that's true, this might not be the church home for you. And I want to tell you, I say that because I don't want to beat around the bush. I'm just saying this is how we approach the scriptures here. This is how we think here. We allow room and space for disagreements. Because the ancient original people who told these stories and, and held these stories and, and helped them form and shape their identity as individuals and families, as communities and as people, they argued and debated about them more than we do. They believe that that's what these stories were intended to do, is to draw us in in a way that we care about them enough that we're willing to argue and, and talk and discuss. So that's the, what happened, how big of a scale, how not. We're going to revisit that theme a couple of times in, in, in particular cases. Then I need to just motor along because I need to be done soon. When we think about the, when we think about like, the overview of the book of the Bible, what, do we think of, what should we think about? One of the things that we should think about is who wrote the book of Exodus? Who wrote the book of Exodus? Now, most of us have believed or have been told that Moses wrote the book of Exodus. Now, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, we'll call the Pentateuch, which we'll get to next. But I've got to tell you, very few scholars and very few reputable, incredible scholars think Moses wrote the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus in the Pentateuch never says that Moses wrote it. Moses, it says that Moses wrote a few things, but there's a number of hints within the narrative that tell scholars that Moses didn't write this book. And then there's, all, within the last probably 70 years, there's this very um, ex widely accepted consensus about who wrote the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, and that is that most scholars believe that there are four rabbinical, ancient rabbinical schools who wrote the first five books of the Bible, including the book of Exodus. Now, I'm not going to go into who those four groups are, even though they're fun, and I'd really love to geek out hard with you. Maybe we'll save that for a Q&A, or maybe even we'll do kind of like a, a small group where I get to answer some of these questions outside of a Sunday morning. That sounds kind of fun. But there's four main rabbinical schools who most scholars believe wrote the Pentateuch and put them together, and it doesn't make it, just so you know, to me at least, it doesn't make it any less reliable, it doesn't make it any less miraculous that four rabbinical schools wrote this instead of the person of Moses. For me, as I've read, studied, and, and, and for many biblical scholars, it makes it actually more miraculous 
See, because what they believe is that four different independent rabbinical schools were writing these same stories. And when you bring them together, it actually almost seamlessly works together. That would be like if four different groups of authors and writers were writing this, this work and telling the story. And then, unbeknownst to them, when you bring them together, all of a sudden, it turns into war and peace. This huge, epic story that has formed thoughts and imaginations, and that is this incredible work of art and literature. The fact that the Pentateuch could come together from four different rabbinical schools and be so consistent and fairly seamless, to me, is a miracle. It's evidence to me of the inspiration of scriptures that God is behind these words and these stories. God is in them, and he's putting them together and weaving them together in such a way that he wants these stories to be told for thousands and thousands of years to form a people into a community that follows God. So, I've been, so we talk about the author of the book of the Bible, or of the book of Exodus. Now let's also talk about this Pentateuch, this, this churchy word that I've been saying, the Pentateuch or the Torah. The Pentateuch is what? First five books of the Bible. I've, been, I've kind of been saying it so you guys get credit, but... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. And what's really important for us to, to remember, and we're going to get it in, in, in two weeks when we dive into the Exodus 1, and next week my spiritual director, Mark Werner, is going to be here sharing with us. You don't want to miss Mark Werner anytime he's here, just so you know. But in two weeks, we're going to dive into Exodus 1, and what we're going to find is that the, the, the book of the Bible begins in a way that shows us this story is not an independent, isolated story, this book of Exodus. It's part of one big story that the, 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 Hebrew scripture, the writers of the Hebrew Scriptures are putting together, which is the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible are all one big story about this God who had to have a people for his own and how the book of Exodus is how that God was revealed by name and character and identity and was understood and how that God formed this ragtag group of people into a nation. But it's only one piece of the story that's told throughout the Pentateuch. So we might actually look back. I guarantee you we're going to look back on the book of Genesis and we're going to look forward in the rest of the Pentateuch because it is one big cohesive story. See, because God's dream that we find in the Pentateuch and that we find in the whole scriptures is that God wants a people for his own. But not just this one little isolated group of people. There's, there's many churches probably who are thinking and praying about what's happening in the Middle East, and they're doing it from this Zionist perspective that, that God only loves the people of Israel and the church. That just means you're not reading the scriptures seriously because we find throughout all of the scriptures that God loves and cares for all humanity. And the biggest purpose behind this book of Exodus is to show that God wants to make this people into a nation so that that nation could become a blessing to all the peoples of the world. And here's the fun part. Here's the next little, the last little bit of Bible 101, Exodus 101, is that we know the end of the story. And it, I want to tell you, there are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, and the story of Exodus doesn't end in Exodus 40. It doesn't end in the Pentateuch at all. See, the reason that I can say we know the end of the story is because 
We studied the end of the story of the book of Exodus just a couple weeks ago, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. See, whenever we open the Bible and open the, New Test- the Old Testament in particular, it's as if we're, we've, we're the, the, the kind of person, and maybe you, you won't, maybe you won't admit to it, but I don't know if there's anybody who's crazy and sadistic enough to open a book and turn to the last page first. Does anybody do that? Do you do that? I don't understand it. Michelle, come on. It just ruins the whole story. But it's like all of us are doing that now. See, because we know the end of the story. The whole Bible is about this person named Jesus. And the book of Exodus is about this person named Jesus. See, the book of Exodus, the, one of the main points of it, if not the main point of it, is God revealing God's self to a people, revealing God's character, revealing God's nature, revealing what God is like and what God wants from his people. And you don't get to, the, to, to understand the full magnitude of what God is like until you meet Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the book of Exodus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole narrative of the Old Testament. And I'm not saying that because I'm some quack job, you know, person who has a skewed perspective on the scriptures. I'm just believing Jesus when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not believe that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, but know that I've come to fulfill them. And so we get this fun little cheat sheet that the original readers and hearers of the story never got. We, get to know, we know what God is like, this God of the scriptures. And so this is, this is what I said, this fancy term that I said a couple weeks ago in me, when I did this Q&A, is that the way we're going to interpret and read the book of Exodus is through a hermeneutic. Uh, it, Jesus is going to be our hermeneutic in the book of Exodus. Jesus is our hermeneutic. That's just a fancy way me trying to impress you when I could just say this. Jesus is the lens we'll read the book of Exodus through. Jesus is the filter that we'll have. We will have an agenda, and it's, our agenda is the person of Christ. And so that means this is just a really, I'm just giving you a really simple way to interpret the scriptures. When we have questions about the nature of God in the book of Exodus, and we struggle with the nature of God and what we find in the book of Exodus, if you want to know what God's really like, you look to Jesus. When we have questions about what it means to be God's people in the book, in the book of Exodus, when we struggle with that, we're going to look at Jesus. When we have questions about morals and ethics and even violence that we find, because we're going to have questions about violence in the Old Testament from the book of Exodus. We're not going to hide from it, but we're going to see it every time through the lens of Jesus because Jesus, the writers of the scriptures say, is the fullest revelation of who God is that we'll ever have. So every, at every turn, we're going to see this stuff through Jesus, and I think it's going to help us understand it more. My hope, friends, is that as we make our way through this ancient story that has captured the hearts of Hollywood and Sunday school teachers, is that we learn a little bit more about how to engage this complex library of books called the Holy Scriptures. 
my hope is, is that we're going to find and, and dive into the story that's thousands of years old, that people have been telling their children and their families and one another for thousands of years. It started in the Middle East and it spread throughout all the world as we dive into this epic, crazy story. I hope it sheds a little light on who, what God is like and what God is about in the world. I hope it's going to teach us a little bit about what it means to be God's people. We get to learn from the Israelites the good, the bad, and the ugly. And hopefully, and this is the point of the whole thing, just like our Old Testament scholar friend said several minutes ago, hopefully we're going to encounter this God who inspires us to worship this God even more. To be more devoted and to follow in the footsteps of the people who have gone before us, who have had this story shape them as a people and shape their view of God and vision of God while also knowing we know what God looks like because of Jesus. I'm excited to dive into this book with you. Let's stand and pray together. What a... What an interesting thing we get to do on these Sunday mornings together, Father. A room full of people with more watching online, whether it's live or Wednesday evening when our kids are in bed. We huddle together and think about this story that's been told and passed on through generation after generation after generation after generation, and I could be here until 5 o'clock saying that. Stories that have shaped people and families and communities and religions. Stories that have brought up really difficult questions and maybe even brought up a spiritual crisis or two. But I love diving into these ancient stories because I love that we have this God who was relating with human beings thousands of years ago and is still doing the same thing today trying to reveal that God's self. Trying to teach us and form us and shape us into a people just like God you were forming and shaping the ancient Hebrew people. Over 3,000 years ago, you're still desiring to mold and form and shape us into that same kind of people. A people who become a blessing to the people around them a people who get it wrong more often than not, but a people who you are persistent about pursuing. So would you form us and shape us through these stories just like so many people through the ages? Would you reveal yourself through these stories and would you help clear some things up and would you help us know that we won't get to the end of the story, we won't get to the end of the knowledge about it because we're just humans trying our best but trying our best means we're just trying to follow you, Jesus. So come and Holy Spirit, guide us. And now we end our time by worshiping you.